Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I explore the concept of psychological and spiritual awakening. Is awakening the same as enlightenment or self-actualization? Does it happen gradually or all at once? How does one know if and when you are awoken? What role can psychedelic medicine play in the process of awakening or enlightenment? We discuss these questions and a lot more in today's episode. If you're watching on YouTube, we'd be honored if you'd click the like button and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on a podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star review. This tells the the silicon-based hive mind controlling our attention spans these days to put our show in front of more people who might benefit from it. If you'd like to email us, uh, you can, I'll, I'll permit it, at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. You can find myself and Reed on Instagram. Reed is at Interspace Doctor. I am at Dr. Steve Thayer on Instagram. Without further ado, brace yourself for a conversation on awakening. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Steve Thayer here with an enlightened being, Dr. <laughs> Reed Robison. Thought we were supposed to make disclaimers of I know my, the opposite. My disclaimer is that while I am still on the long and winding path to awakening, I just look to you as an example as the the most enlightened psychiatrist that I, <laughs> I know. Um, I disagree, yeah. but thank you. You, you, reject, <laughs> you reject my compliment. No, it's <clears throat> today we're going to talk about awakening, the concept of awakening and, and enlightenment, insofar as those two terms are synonymous or overlap. Yeah, what do you think of the two terms? Like, do you consider them one and the same? I, I th they feel different to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, we should probably start by saying, at least I will start by saying, I am not an expert on enlightenment and awakening. <laughs> Certainly not from the Eastern perspective. I come at it from kind of a more of a sort of Abraham Maslow self-actualization transcendence perspective, like the, the psychology, Western psychology yeah. perspective. But I like the term awakening because it implies yeah. um, kind of a discovery that can happen all at once. Uh, it can happen slowly too, but it also implies yeah. that we're asleep to something. And, mm -hmm. and this realization, if we're asleep to something, then the realization represents waking up. Yeah. I like that. I like that. It's a process awakening, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a goal or something you attain. And I do uh, find them quite similar when I look at enlightenment to me often means Flicking on the light switch, mm -hmm. um, shining the light on the dark corners of, of yourself and the world, uh, or a radical change of perspective. But then awakening is this kind of equally um, fun visual of just like waking up from an asleep state. Right. Uh, it always makes me think of Sam Harris's book and app by that term, by that name, waking up. Yeah. Um, because you know he was that his book waking up a guide to spirituality without religion was was um one of the first books i read sort of on this topic in my mm -hmm. younger years and I'm still young people i'm young and spry but when i was younger than i am now and uh same and i think for him it, it's kind of a waking up to the nature of consciousness the non dual nature of consciousness from maybe the yeah. zogchen perspective or something like that from the illusion of separation yeah, yeah. exactly yeah that book was really um transformative, I might even say, 
for me as well. And I also read it in the past when I was younger. <laughs> Maybe we read it at the same time. Maybe, I don't know. yeah. It was in the last five to ten years, let's say. Yeah, when was it published? I don't even know. It felt like it was a long time ago for me. And then I've been using his app, uh, his Waking Up app, for some meditation coaching. Shame. We should uh, give a shout-out since we don't have any sponsors, <laughs> we shout out whatever the heck we want. That's right. We just um, talk about the stuff we like. And uh, I really like his app and I recommend it quite often. Mm-hmm. And there's a website as well where you can access these things. But, mm-hmm. but one of the lesser known things about the Waking Up app is that, I love this approach he takes, is that um, he wants everyone to have access regardless of ability to pay the list price. So if you can't afford the whatever it costs, somewhere in the 50 to $100 a year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all you have to do is send a message and say, oh, um, I can't afford that price, and they'll give you a massive discount. I heard him on an interview say that he hired a team of like four or five people just to handle those requests. Oh, wow. So, you know, he's really serious about this being a labor of love and a mission in his life. And I think waking up, you know, the company is, is, I'm sure it's still profitable. But, um, yeah, he's super committed to making sure that the people who need access have access. He's also been really big about the whole effective altruism movement. Yeah. The idea that if, you know, if you're going to donate money, donate it to the causes that are going to do the most good and there's a way to figure that out. There is a way. It's not easy to figure out. It's an important thing (laughs) to figure out where to direct your kind of energetic uh, aid to the universe and suffering. So some of the things that he touches on that I still struggle with in sort of my own, is it a path? Is it a quest? We can talk about what it is. My uh, sort of the unfolding of my own, um, I'll just call it a path toward whatever awakening might be or enlightenment might be, is the idea of no self and then the idea of the illusion of conscious will, which he's really He's, he's really controversial about the, his idea that there is no free will technically, but I don't know what I want to touch that. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm let's, super prepared uh, for that one. Let's leave that debate over there yeah, for now. Yeah. But the no self is interesting. One of the things, one of the yeah. cues he'll often give is to sort of look for the looker. So you're sitting there sometimes with an eyes open meditation and he'll say, when I snap my fingers, see if you can turn attention on itself. Or I've heard him, uh, guide this one where he says, okay, close your eyes and feel your face, not with your hand, but like draw your attention to the sensations Mm -hmm. in your face. Okay. Now draw your attention to the sensations at the back of your head and face and head, face and head. Um, with the idea being, I think that, you know, we often sort of locate ourselves in our skulls in part because that's where our eyes are. That's where we perceive, Mm -hmm. you know, from at least with our visual field, uh, but he's trying to help us, I think, understand that, that this concept of the self, of an observer, of an objective subject is an illusion, that we are all simply the grand container within which all sensation and perception and conception occurs. You know, I'm just stuck on this little mini funny trigger when you said the looker, yeah. the term he uses. Um, I just can't stop thinking about how my dad has used that term um, about an old college term when he would say, oh, yeah, she was a looker. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally like a 1950s. Yeah, yeah cool cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she's a looker. I could definitely see my dad saying I that. I think it was around, so there's this uh, 
dear friend of mine. Let's give a shout out to Clark Johnson, mm. psychiatrist, uh, um, and and such a good friend. Who we were in med school together, and we realized that um, my dad dated his mom in college. No way. <laughs> yeah. So we used to joke about brothers from another mother yeah, or something like yeah. that. But but. Uh, and then when I asked my dad about it, uh, he said something like, oh, yeah, she was a looker. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. I, I, uh, what, what year was your dad born? Do you uh, know? 51. Okay. So my dad was, was super old. He was born in 29. Oh, wow. Yeah, he started his family when he was 45. So I was born when he was mm. in his 50s. Um, so he came Impressive. From, yeah, yeah, he was born the year of the Great Depression. And, you know, he, so he had some sort of outdated slogans and ways of saying mm-hmm, things. Um, but for a guy his age, he was actually pretty awake, I should say. Um, really compassionate, really dutiful, really thoughtful guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he would also often joke around and be like, Stephen, don't marry for money, but marry where money is. <laughs> and I was always like, that's good advice, Dad. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know yet. but um, Or he'd say, uh, if we were complaining about something, he'd say, better where there's none. And we would just, I mean, these were like koans almost. Like we just mm-hmm. had to contemplate these, yeah. these things that my dad would say, which were basically like old British sayings from his mom. Um, or he'd say it was uh, hotter than the hinges of Hades or, um, or we'd, oh, we'd bite into a piece of food and it would be hot. Like, oh, that's hot. And he'd say, oh, it came from a hot place. Like, well, you're not wrong, dad. Yeah. <laughs> but he often would joke around about us dating. And, he's, and he, uh, I dated this, this person in high school and, uh, he often referred to her as a buxom blonde, and I—I oh. I, I didn't know what the word buxom. Meant. <laughs> I looked to, I didn't Google it because we didn't have Google, but I had, I had to look it up. <laughs> and I was like, "Dad, come on, man! I don't know." How did you look things up in high school pre-Google? <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember. We had it. We had Encyclopedia Britannica's. Yeah, we had a shelf of those <laughs> dic- dictionaries. Yeah, it's weird to think that we have been alive. I mean, this is a total tangent, but like we have that we have been alive during the course of that kind of evolution in human society. Like I remember oh, when yeah. it was like not to have a cell phone, not to have caller ID, not to have the internet, not even to have a personal computer. Yeah. I and, didn't have a cell phone in high school or a personal computer yeah. um, or an email address when I started college. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> email address. When I got, when I got back from my LDS mission, I had to make an email address cause I like didn't have one yeah. in high school and it was a hotmail address. And I, for the life of me, I cannot remember why I chose this because it's, oh. in retrospect, it is horrifying. But my email address was softdominance uh. at hotmail.com. <laughs> and I remember making it and then giving it to my mom because she's like had to help help me register for college. And she's like, what is that? That sounds like <laughs> like a porn star or like, it sounds like yeah, some mom. Kind of weird kinky thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I'm into. No, I, <laughs> I, had, I had no, I, I literally, I wish I could go back in time and interview that version of me and be like, what the hell were you thinking? I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe now I should have, I should have kept it. Cause I now I have an, I'm an enlightened awakened sexual being, but <laughs> yeah, back then not so much. We're on this epic tangent and mm-hmm. I'm just going to continue it. I love it. Um, because someone once told me, uh, that you should be random, like be as unpredictable as you can. Then people don't expect as much <laughs> predictable stuff from you, yeah. like in terms of texting them back or right. something like that. I thought it was interesting. It made me think. Interesting advice. You should be random. I like yeah. that. So your email address was soft dominance. Yeah. Quite random. I don't know that I still have that one. 
Uh, so I changed it to Steve the Sleeve 50 because 50 was my high school football number at hotmail.com. Changed it immediately, like after yeah, you feeling pretty much. shame and guilt and all that. Don't email <laughs> me. Don't email me at these email addresses, folks. They no longer exist. But mine was kind of the opposite. It was Reed Robinson at hotmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> first and very rational. Yeah, yeah. Very rational. Yeah, and it was also territorial because I come from a line of Reed Robinsons. I'm the third. There's a fourth oh. down there in my lineage. <laughs> da- he goes by Dallin now. But oh, uh, oh I forgot. I forgot yeah. about that. And uh, so I was like, as the internet came out, staking the usernames, the domains. I got it on Twitter before my dad did. <laughs> there you go. Staking yeah. your claims. Yeah. You know, this, this silly story about soft dominance, um, it makes me think of, you know, we can get into more detail about what enlightenment is, what awakening is. But one of the things I want to talk about for sure is that I think you can become awake to a lot of different things. Yeah. I suppose there is the awakening, like the enlightenment, where you become woke to, you know, the nature of consciousness and self, mm-hmm. the non-dual self. Maybe that is the awakening. Um, but yeah, I feel the like great I've had awakening. the great awakening. But I feel like I've had multiple awakenings in yeah. my life. I agree. I agree. And I, I kind of, uh, especially since we had a discussion about this earlier today in another meeting, I, I'm seeing it as this mandala. Uh, because in the Buddhist teachings, there is this concept that awakening or consciousness expansion in one area of your life doesn't necessarily transfer over into another. And they give like sometimes the examples of look at the pro athletes and, um, their agility in sport, uh, doesn't necessarily transfer over to their uh, emotional intelligence and attunement. Right. <laughs> you know, and you can think of that in so many areas and you look inward. Wow. Yeah. The, the awakening process certainly for me, and it's a process and I might be a beginner baby at it still for mm-hmm. all I know, but it happens in, in certainly different areas. Yeah, I was listening to an interview with on Sam's app where he talked to Joseph Goldstein, an old friend of his. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think he's a Vipassana teacher. Yeah. yeah, he's one of the greats. One of the greats, and they have this very fun dynamic where they they're always arguing with each other and teasing each other. And but they were talking about this phenomenon that you describe among some of the greatest teachers they ever encountered in their travels to Nepal and yeah, these these teachers who for all. You know, all evidence would point to their arhat status, right? These are uh, enlightened Buddhas. Um, But then they might be, you know, yelling at everybody in one corner, or they might be propositioning students sexually, or they might have, they might have, uh, you know, trouble with alcohol or other substances. Look, look at Alan Watts. And a lot of people have a hard time with the fact that they discover Alan Watts on YouTube or wherever in his books. And their mind is like awakened in some way, their mind, heart, whatever. Um, but then they hear down the road at some point that he struggled with alcoholism or that he had all these uh, marriages and, and everything else. And then uh, that can be a difficult pill for some people to swallow when they realize they're like guru or um, like figure of awakening is actually uh, not perfect. Right. So what does it mean then? So if, if awakening is not perfection, right? If it's not perfection of care of moral character, um, if enlightenment can be present irrespective of personality type, right? Some people are just more pleasant 
by disposition. Um, they have a higher, happier set point. Their sort of default level of existence is higher just by dint of their, the way their brains grew and their skulls. If it's not perfection, what it's is certainly it? certainly not perfection. It's a process of waking up or um, self-realizing in different areas of life that could happen somewhat in unison, but probably more often than not um, happens at different times. And you have to give some intention to the gardens of your life that you water and the areas of practice that you dedicate more and more energy to. To uh, I think another uh, way I look at the enlightenment concept is balance too. Mm. You know, just the, uh, yeah, the equanimity and flexibility and, and uh, attention to multiple areas of life rather than just like waking up in one and giving it all and letting the rest go to shit. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Yeah, that would imply an imbalance, right? Hard to strike a balance. I'm thinking of the through line though. Again, I'm, I'm still a student of this stuff. So the through line of awakening or enlightenment is it this this the non-dual awareness like the realization that we are all already awake we just have to realize it like we are all already just existence itself like it's yeah, very, very difficult yeah. these are ineffable concepts really but the temple of like awakening and worship is actually inside of you or or there there are those core principles like those common themes that that you see in all these different paths up that same mountain of like spiritual paths and towards enlightenment. And I, I think one of them is that illusion of separation, like mm -hmm. waking up to the fact that we actually think we're separate and we get in all these fights and our egos go wild and there are wars and there, there are prejudices and there is so much suffering that comes from it. Um, but when we shatter that and, um, and realize the interconnectedness and the oneness of it all. I think that's the great awakening. Mm. Yeah. It's a wonderful wellspring of compassion, it seems. Yeah. When you realize you're not separate, that we're all part of the same whatever, life force, energy. Yeah. There are a couple analogies that I've really enjoyed. I think one of them I've shared before of the ocean, like we we express ourselves as these individual waves. And you might think you're this awesome, individual, unique, um, one-of-a-kind waveform. And you are expressing yourself as an awesome, individual, unique, one-of-a-kind waveform. But it's easy to forget that you're actually part of this ocean and made of the exact same stuff. And you're just going to, that wave's going to crash one day and you're going to melt back into the sea of mm -hmm. oneness and love that is everyone. Um, and... Uh, you know, that's been a really helpful one for me, as well as this uh, idea of you could look at us all as formless chocolate, melted chocolate. And now we're talking. Yeah, we get poured into individual molds of individual humans, like these human shaped chocolate bars. And we wrap our consciousness and memories around that, and we start to forget that soup of melted chocolate that we come from. Um, but then one day, um, or in the process of an awakening, you can kind of melt back into that and realize that you are both the form and the formless and it's all the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of this is experienced on psychedelics for a lot of people. 
It's one of the, the reasons that psychedelics can be such powerful psychotherapy enhancement tools. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I've certainly had experiences where, I remember I had an experience once where I was sort of in deep contemplation and asking, okay, I'm going to ask the big questions. Is there a God? Mm-hmm. What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of my life? And I just immediately experienced the answers. I didn't hear them. I didn't see them, but I experienced Mm -hmm. the answers. And the experience was, of course, there's a God. You are God. Everything is God. Mm -hmm. It is all God. And, uh, you know, what is the purpose of your life? It is to live. You know, the the journey is not uh, walking a path toward a destination. The journey is walking. It it is to journey. That is the, the purpose of life. And I don't know. It felt profound at the time. It is, it is. And, and it's also so simple and obvious mm-hmm. at the same time. Like, you know, a musician isn't playing the violin to hurry to the finish line, right? Yeah, right. or else he'd start with the last note. Yeah. Yeah, the, it's difficult to grok, though, for, for like, certainly our uh, Western minds um, in America with our roots deep in Puritanism and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not good enough and you got to prove yourself to God kind of ideologies. And just capitalism does that to us too. I'm a big fan of having money and freedom. Don't get me wrong, folks. But yeah, yeah, the idea that you need to accumulate, you need to impress, you need to prove yourself in order to have worth. It's uh, it's the anatomy of a lot of chronic stress and mental conditions, mental health conditions. I think that brings up a really important point of like, so awakening, enlightenment, call it whatever you want, self-realization. I like aspects of all of those different terms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, there are, I think, pros and cons of each as far as our language goes. But another question that I find really important is what's in the way of awakening? Mm-hmm. Or what are the obstacles to self-realization? And uh, you mentioned or alluded to some of them, like the attachments and aversions and uh, um, things like that, that uh, become the path and the practices. And you mentioned psychedelic therapy can be an accelerated path to peel away layers or chisel away at this like sculpture or this block of marble that is ourselves until you uncover the real self mm-hmm. and the the seeker becomes the seer or the the looker. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and that's we get that from Buddhism as well. And in, in many in Hinduism, traditions, yeah. Hinduism, the idea that it's attachments that, that cause us to suffer. Pain is inevitable. It's an important just function of yeah. the physics of life. But it's our craving and desire and attachments that cause us great suffering. Yeah, so it's not um, a matter of attaining the things we don't have. It's like... Um, parting the clouds so you can actually see, right? Uh, You can see the light that's already there. And I have noticed that personally in my own life. Like I remember when I was uh, training in deeply in yoga, this is maybe six years ago. I went out of town to New York City, was studying with this teacher. It was like a teacher training and a deep dive. And um, in the middle of that, I woke up to the fact that I had too many attachments. Mm. (laughs) I had too many projects even like um i used to like these old uh like german automobiles restoring them and they were i mean i still think they're kind of cool but i just uh like it was an important thing for me i also had like these old uh do you know what a cafe racer motorcycle is uh like these old like british uh um bikes that are 
that are uh, um, kind of restored into this certain style of like low handlebars and leather seat. And mm -hmm. um, it was just cool. And I had multiple of those going on. I had a couple of these uh, Porsche projects. And then I just one day I was like, oh, they all have to go. And wow. I was quite attached to one of these these vehicles, actually. I mean, a couple of them, like this 1972 um, Porsche 911, this 1984 that was just amazing, but they all had to go. <laughs> and uh, and part of that, yeah, it was just the shedding of attachments, you know. How'd you feel after letting them go? You know, <laughs> there's a lightness about it, and, and lightness is a word that I've... Um, struggled with for a while um and then come back to i'll rewind to uh another little tangent story mm -hmm. uh, when i was a kid in uh family home evening if anyone's from utah and, and knows what culturally this is like in the lds church there's often a family get together on a monday evening to teach some spiritual concept right mm -hmm. it's a cool idea yeah right? i like it good um, family time yeah and uh my my parents would bring in these different uh, perspectives, which I thought was awesome. And my mother one evening was teaching us kids about uh, the Egyptian wane of the heart ceremony. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where, um, and I, I was just fascinated because I kind of pictured myself as a kid in that culture long ago, how that would be to have that worldview of like, after you die, you descend to the underworld and this like crocodile headed beast takes your heart out and they put it on a scale. And if it's lighter than a feather, then you get to pass to heaven. And if right. it's not, you get eaten by the the demon beast from hell or whatever. Right, right. Um, it's like, whoa, that's uh, could be motivating. Like, yeah. But then I think of our hellfire and damnation and um, Western religion too. And um, yeah, the, I I I feel like that's one of the awakenings I've had in my life. So if, if we want to talk about. Uh, occasional awakenings, not like the capital A awakening. Yeah. I feel like I, I have awakened to the role that fear and shame has played in my development mm -hmm. and um, how spacious and light and free I feel now yeah. having offered it up to the fire. Like certainly I feel embarrassed about things and guilty, but I do not carry the burden of shame like I used to. And the fear that if my heart is heavier than a feather that I will burn forever. This is just for me, right? This is my path me yeah. personally. This that has been an incredible burden lifted for me. And there've been a lot of things in my life, a lot of um yeah, a lot of things I have done that have helped me get there. Yeah. But it's not something I fully embody all the time. I still experience these blips of shame on that radar. And uh, one of the things that has helped me work with that and work to embody that the most is um, this concept of the multiplicity of selves, mm -hmm. which, you know, the Richard Schwartz, Dick Schwartz, his uh, internal family systems model is my, is my current working model for how I do it for myself and for some of my clients. Mm -hmm. This idea that at our core, we are uh, pure. You know, we have a, he calls it the capital S self, which is so unwieldy. I like, I don't love that term for me. It's, I just call it like core self or higher self. That we don't have to say big S self. Oh, I do kind of like big ass self. Um, big ass self. It's easier uh, when you write it down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you see it written down. But yeah, this, this, the qualities of this core self that if I am not embodying these qualities, I know that some other part that is the representation of a wound, of a trauma, of stuckness, of a protector or something yeah. is at the steering wheel or at the microphone. And because I've had enough experience in core self or higher self, I kind of know once I've wandered away. 
And in the past, it's been really difficult for me to just know like that I am captured by my conditioning or captured by my trauma because uh, I've, I've just completely blended with it. But now that I'm unblended with many of those parts, I, I have a system. I have a way of saying, okay, I'm, I'm not who I know I can be in the self-actualization uh, perspective. I'm not my best self, my self-actualized self. And I have some techniques now that I can use to get back there. Yeah, I love that uh, approach that Dick Schwartz has brought to light of of those clues or the signposts to know if you are embodying your truest, deepest supreme self mm-hmm. you know with with those simple words like if you're in the state of like calm clarity connectedness or Compassion. whatever it is. yeah 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 you, you it's a clue to who might be in the driver's seat and uh you don't want to have in the driver's seat certainly all the time one of the kind of wounded uh or driven by fear or sh- guilt or shame parts of yourself one of the phrases that I've heard recently that, that um, I like repeating to myself when these parts sort of mm-hmm. come to the foreground is whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Um, mm-hmm. you know, whatever is will not be forever. There, there's only really a few, maybe only one thing that is enduring and that is just sort of uh, the, the, the nature of witnessing, like conscious awareness impermanence is uh, impermanence is only permanent thing (laughs) right the only thing constant is change you'll never step in the same river twice like there's and these are from all corners of wisdom Mm -hmm. that kind of approach these these central concepts yeah but the lightness piece i'm glad you mentioned your experience with that because like we were talking about one example one little a awakening i like Mm -hmm. that as well uh, of attachment to things and if i look back at it like I was in med school I think at that time and you know having a 1972 car that I was quite fond of that would break down all the time Mm. um, and require a lot of TLC was not ideal for my dharma of the moment otherwise Um, just like uh, yeah I had to I had to learn that and I still have to relearn that in different ways Mm. of like now with uh, psychedelic um, you know, experiences influencing it, especially working with ayahuasca in the jungle, like there's this added nature connectedness lens of like, like realizing the impact of like our actions with the planet or, Mm -hmm. you know, our attachments and, and, you know, what is really needed. But then uh, that awakening has shown up in other ways, like, like you said, with the guilt and shame that come, came from, the hellfire and damnation approach that was, um, you know, accidentally or not imposed on by some religious teachers at a young age of like, you better not die if you're not following these rules. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a lot to carry. And the moment, the day I was able to let go of that, it was so liberating and felt so light. Right. Yeah. I do want to say, because I think a lot of our listeners are local to Utah and, yeah. and a lot of them are LDS or maybe formerly LDS. Um, we're not implying that it is a uh, core doctrine of the LDS church that, you know, if you aren't good, you'll go to hell and burn forever. And in fact, that's one of the things I loved about LDS doctrine is that there really isn't like a, a hell. There's something they call outer darkness that's reserved for people, very, very rare <laughs> subset of human beings. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I felt like the LDS per- conception of, you know, um, where you go if you don't 
follow all the rules. <laughs> yeah. It was more like school than it was like hell. And I thought that was much more compassionate and a, a take on that particular ideology or doctrine that I preferred to, you know, purgatory. Yeah. And I, uh, I really appreciate that like disclaimer and commentary too, because part of my waking up process that is very much ongoing. And like I said, could be in the very early stages was this newfound appreciation for like religious paths and how not only are we all just walking each other home, Mm -hmm. right? We are all trying our best to put words around these ineffable concepts and these multiple paths up the mountain. And I, and I started to see like, thanks to some of these other, like, uh, things I encountered in my life, like Joseph Campbell's writings on the power of mythology and just appreciating the beauty, the depth of the stories um, told in all religions, like um, Mormonism, all of Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism. Like it just took a whole new life uh, with this fond appreciation for the messages behind it. Yeah, I remember when I discovered Stoicism in college, and I was like, oh, this this stuff's the shit. I mean, I didn't say that back then because I was at BYU and Mm -hmm. wasn't a a heathen swearing person. You go to outer darkness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This stuff is the best, you know. Um, Marcus Aurelius is the man. And uh, and I just remember being, like, marveling at the overlap between a lot of Stoic wisdom and what I had been raised with, you know, Mm -hmm. of Judeo-Christian LDS wisdom. Um, so yeah, now it's just really fun for me to see the overlap as you were talking about, see the, um, the common ground that so many of, of we humans have arrived at in our efforts to make sense of the, un the unsensible, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the ineffable as you, as you called it. As you start, when you start to let go of that illusion of separation, you start to see the inherent goodness in all the other human beings around um, who are trying their best to figure it out just like we all are, Mm -hmm. the best with what they have. And you start to have this like, this love emanating from your heart to theirs that just like um, transcends all that mundane stuff and the drama of day-to-day life. Yeah. And how important is that? I mean, it's been important forever, but especially now, um, because it's certainly easy if you pick where you point your gaze to become a misanthrope, just to become completely disillusioned with the yeah. virtue, the core virtue of humanity, because you just see terror, destruction, greed, all the worst of us. You you could, if you decided to follow certain Twitter feeds or whatever, <laughs> simply just see the worst humanity has to offer all the time. Um, but it's a choice to look there, just as much as it's a choice to look where the love exists and the compassion and the heroism. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the choosing to look at negative Twitter feeds or whatever, mm-hmm. because um, you know a, a dear friend once was looking at an ayahuasca retreat out in uh, Costa Rica, where the facilitator was going to be Dennis McKenna, mm. who you know I I look up to as one of the great like psychedelic. Pioneers, one of the living greats, and right. Terrence McKenna's brother, mm-hmm. and the stories they have. Wow, the papers he's published, the lectures he gives are mind blowing to me. But they looked at his Twitter feed and saw how he was raging against the machine of like politics and everything, and they totally canceled their plans to go sit with him. It's it reminds me of that 
Alan Watts, um, alcoholism trigger. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you, you do need to be, it's your own personal choice of like the boundaries you set up and what energy you let in and who you associate with and all that. Um, I'm just pointing out that, uh, that we all have our own, um, awakening process at, at a different pace and different ways. And we've all got work to do. Yeah. I think that is super important. And I think a lot of the world is falling asleep instead of waking up to nuance. That mm-hmm. was one of my personal awakenings, little a awakenings has been, um, to the, the fact that in a human mind, in a human consciousness, in a human personality, there, you can hold con- apparently contradictory traits or beliefs um, or behaviors, mm-hmm. and it doesn't make the person evil. And you see this polarization, especially online, where people, it's like you're either all this, all this, all this, and if you're not all me, then you're all against me. There's a mm-hmm. lot of othering, right? A lot of tribalism, if you want to call it that, or just in-group, outgrouping. More separation yeah yeah which is the opposite of what we've been talking about in terms of mm-hmm. awakening enlightenment is that we the the separation is an illusion we're yeah. all part of the human family yeah and it does get worse in this like canceling of each other mm-hmm. without any uh slack or leeway or um ability to even sometimes carry on a dialogue about our own perspectives of, re- of reality yeah you know yeah, I think we need to cut uh, cut each other some slack. Yeah, yeah, and one of the byproducts of like capital A awakening, I think, or that like catching glimpses of that for me has been wow. Like one thing I uh, hope for, um, aim for, or have my intention kind of pointed at is the ability to hold love and anything else at the same time, mm. like love and anger, let the anger out in a conscious, you know, healthy, empowered way. Let the sadness be there and the love and like holding everyone in love, even if they're like, like falling apart or a hot mess or, um, triggering the hell out of you. Yeah. Yeah. So just a be loving awareness. Yeah. This, uh, this like expansive, um, ability to love in through the day-to-day struggles. Yeah. I've heard teachers talk about the, the difference between doing and being, right? You can do mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You can do mindfulness in order to be more relaxed. You can yeah. do meditation in order to be more loving. Um, and then there's just being what you already are. And this is the stuff I can, I can talk about, I can articulate it, but I still don't understand. <laughs> I still don't have a durable experience of just being, as I said, I'm not capital A awakened, but <laughs> I've touched it. Like you said, I, f- I feel like I've touched it and I can see the value there. I can see what you could drop and let go of and transcend mm-hmm. and, um, merge with. You know, if I have a good a good meditation practice where there's some goal. I'm going to go get on my cushion or I'm going to go get on my mat and finish with this epic meditation. If I really embody that, um, how it shows up for me is taking it beyond the mat and into your day and into your day-to-day life where you become the meditation. Like you practice in the gaps of your, like the line at the grocery store when you're in a hurry and you're sitting there and still able to like, connect with that human, look them in the eyes and like from your heart to theirs, just, you know, 
in any little way acknowledge that you see them and you're in this together and there's that oneness like like not letting go of that i think is a beautiful fruit of a practice beyond the i got to get my meditation reps in right exactly <laughs> Yeah, there's, that's two very different ways, I think, of looking at meditation. One is to um, try to drop into the space and peel away the obstruction that prevents you from being what you already are, yeah. just loving awareness. And then there's meditation as an exercise, right? I need to sharpen my skill of mindfulness. I need to sharpen my yeah. skill of returning to my breath uh, or being able to attend to something, to hold my attention on something like the breath. And I think both are valuable, yeah, both can be true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but one is still very is very much about doing, and the other is more about being. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we mentioned a little bit ayahuasca, mm-hmm. like, and I remember my first ever experience with ayahuasca. You know, flew down to the jungle, um, had this series of ceremonies, and then was working at the retreat as a you know medical support and co-therapist and what struck me in terms of awakening is you know having those experiences that were intense you know difficult and blissful all at once um sure that's striking but what was really striking was what happened next because i had never felt myself before that time um walking through life with so much lightness or having my heart so wide open to like it was it was insane in such a cool way how connected i felt to people i was working with in like a therapy process where i could at uh at moments you know notice one little occurrence i could just shed a tear with them but hold it all together hold that container um but but help hold their suffering and uh, really see them with new eyes that uh, it was just striking to me the ability of that medicine. Um, And then I've looked back at my life since and I've seen it show up in other ways like, um, you know, we talk about these dark nights of the soul or sometimes it's a suffering or a struggle or a grief that brings that up like... um, after my grandpa's funeral, wow, Mm. like that, you know, that's a heart openness. You know, it's like when you fall in love, there's like an awakening Mm. of the heart in different ways too, that uh, I think is so beautiful. And psychedelics are a way show or a way of like opening that gate or or showing you um, glimpses of the true self. Yeah, yeah. I, I will see your ayahuasca story and raise you a ketamine story. All right. Um, so when I was first developing my interest in psychedelics and psychedelic medicine, um, I decided to seek ketamine treatment for myself. I've been struggling with some depression, wanted to experience it. So I had uh, some ketamine experiences, and in one of those experiences, um, I experienced Steve as a construct. Mm-hmm. And um, it was... I don't know what the who the I was, but whatever the I was was experiencing Steve as a construct, and you know, and that I was thinking, you know, Steve as a construct's not a bad guy. He's <laughs> he's, he's, not. he's nice, you know, he's likable, he's he's compassionate, does his best, he makes mistakes, and sometimes he can be a little selfish and 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 you know, angry or whatever, right? So I was just seeing the humanity of Steve yeah, as a construct, yeah. and but feeling nothing but love and appreciation for that. 
So, you know, you, you sort of finished your story talking about waking up to the nature of the self. And this this has really stuck with me. And I think it set me up to really benefit from what came a few, few years later. And that was my parts work that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. like encountering internal family systems. Because before then, you know, I was uh, very much, a, at least from a professional perspective, pract- a practitioner of acceptance and commitment therapy act, which I think mm-hmm. lines up with this stuff pretty well. But um, also trained in client-centered Rogerian psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Those were kind of my main approaches mm-hmm. to self yeah. and to client work. And there was just something qualitatively different about the IFS approach. But I don't know that I would have grabbed it and held on to it like I have if I hadn't had had that in, embodied out-of-body experience with me as a construct and seeing that a lot of the self-deprecation that I would do, mm-hmm. all getting wrapped up in my triggers was because I neglected to see that they were just sort of an amalgamation of conditioning, training, bias. You weren't ready for them. That's an interesting part of waking up is, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the same lessons don't stick um, in the past or they don't hit in the same way as they would now after waking up a certain part of you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lessons are sticking a lot more, at least certain ones, than they used to. What are some other things I've woken up to recently? I feel like um, I'm having a lot. Like it, mm-hmm. you talk about readiness, that uh, there's a, a large enough hole in the dam that a lot's coming through. Um, I talked about shame earlier. I think one of the things dropping shame has helped me do is explore uh sexuality a little bit more a mm-hmm. little bit with with an open heart and with less shame and maybe we'll save the details for reed and steve after dark our <laughs> new podcast where reed and i talk about nothing but sex and swearing sign up register now right. like and subscribe when's, when's that launch <laughs> <laughs> coming soon <laughs> to earbuds near you send an email to the podcast if you want that yeah, podcast to be go. real <laughs> yeah, we'll get all of all of zero emails um, um but yeah, I think just along those same lines of shame, that's been in- incredibly liberating for me. Yeah, one that comes to mind for me is on my journey through, well, first meditation, like going going hardcore of, mm-hmm. on a sitting practice and realizing that I was kind of neglecting an important part of it for me, which was the body as a vehicle to enlightenment and then discovered, kind of stumbled upon yoga practice and this embodiment journey that opened up the body as a vehicle for awakening in a way that I just had no idea or no concept of before. And along the same lines, I had this awakening to the fact that, you know, there's a loving yourself um, and taking care of yourself necessary part of the equation that I had previously discarded as selfish um, for all sorts of reasons and conditioning, but realizing this idea of having to fill one's cup so you can really give that um, loving awareness to those around you. Makes me think of something I see in a lot of my clients and that I try to help them work through is um, the idea that loving yourself is selfish. The idea, like you said, Mm -hmm. um, that to take credit for something is hubris, that it's narcissistic. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we have these sort of informal conditions, the nice guy, nice gal syndromes, 
um, where, you know, people feel like they're, they're not allowed to like themselves and give props to themselves and have confidence in themselves because it, uh, it's sort of immoral in some ways or, um, will make people not like them. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of times I'm just trying to help a person wake up to the fact that uh, they're awesome. They're awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay to admit it mm-hmm. and believe it. Yeah, and to embody it, right? To embody that, that you're um, at your core lovable. And it enables yeah. you to do all kinds of things, like set boundaries, say no. Yeah. Uh, do the things you like to do. Ask for what you need. And then when your cup is full and it's running over, you can then give judiciously and you can give generously. When you're giving from an empty cup, it's, uh, really, it's not really helping anybody. Especially not you. Yeah. yeah, the embodiment piece of that is uh, a lot of fun. In some groups, I've done an exercise you've probably seen or done in a lot of different ways of like embodying a stance of making yourself small, hunched over, right. like the most depressed posture and trying to say like, I love myself or I'm so cool mm-hmm. in that posture versus like finding that like upright superhero stance and even sometimes visualizing stepping into your own superhero suit and then say something and notice the difference and there's there's a night and day energy about it absolutely absolutely so we could talk about other ideas with respect to awakening and enlightenment um I made reference to Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, I was doing a little reading on Maslow um, and listening to a podcast interview with Scott Barry Kaufman, who's a psychologist who recently came out with a book called Transcend, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a fresh take on Maslow's uh, theories about transcendence, self-actualization. And it's really listening to him talk about it. It's, it's Maslow was more along these lines of, of awakening and enlightenment than he was, um, similar to the other sort of personality theorists of his day. Uh, and I'm not a Maslow expert by any means, but interesting to find out that Maslow never actually conceptualized his hierarchy of needs as a pyramid, that that was, that was created by others. Like he never thought mm-hmm. of it necessarily as, even necessarily as stepwise that you, I mean, there was something like the foundational needs, yeah. the, the safety needs and the physiological needs, those kinds of things. Um, but I actually don't know much about the, the transcend part. I always sort of stopped at self-actualization. So I'm interested to read Scott's book. See That's when your uh, crown chakra blasts off and you're connected to the divine. Right, huh. right. But I, I really like um, that. What I draw from Maslow is the bottom of the pyramid stuff is so important, even if it's, and it's congruent with the fact that he didn't, write the pyramid exactly like that, but there was still this, like, you've got to take care of the basic needs so you can work on the self-realization journey, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, those basic physiological needs, the safety ones, love and social belonging needs. I'm reading from my notes now here. Yeah, because there are two paths out there of, of kind of healing and growth and, like, that feed into this awakening path. And one is uh, doing the healing work of past traumas. And then one is like the deepening of that, the self-realization and self-actualization. And uh, I think it's an important point that comes up of, you know, if we're working with a client in the therapy room and there are, 
there's a bunch of unhealed trauma or full-blown PTSD, um, it's very hard to do some of the other work until we work on that stuff, right? Yeah. The feeling of safety. Exactly. They're huge obstructions to the truth, right? The truth that they are at their core, good and safe and like all these things we've been talking about. So you have to help them work past the, the, the biggest obstructions. Maybe that's one way to think about these lower foundational needs. Mm-hmm. Um, Got to meet those first before you move on to being your highest self and accomplishing the, the purpose for which you were born into the world and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's important to, I like how you said move past it because there is a risk of getting stuck in the healing work. Mm-hmm and not moving on to the other stuff. And in fact, the healing work, there are two parallel paths, I think. Like we're always encountering trauma, stress, and other wounds throughout life, um, at least little T. And uh, you know, of course the big T traumas need to be addressed, um, but there is a risk of getting stuck in the identity of, uh, of healing traumas forever and ever. And uh, when at some point you do need to take the leap of moving on to the higher order stuff or the next stuff or the growth in parallel at least. Yeah. One metaphor I like is is to to think of this sort of river inside of you running from your head out to your out through I guess it would be your root chakra read. I don't know. I'm not Yeah. Not into <laughs> the chakras. But um so then we are the river or that is the nature of us and that life as we go through life we accumulate stones and obstructions in the river yeah, and we aren't the stones, but it, it's difficult. Oftentimes we over identify with the stones and the branches and the obstructions. I am my trauma. I can't because I am this. I can't because I feel this. Um, and we sometimes get lulled into this, this sort of dysfunctional comfort zone mm-hmm. where it's all that we know. And we, because we know it, even though it's uncomfortable, we stay there because it's, it's uh, safe. And I'm doing the air quotes. Mm-hmm. So, I think of like of waking up every day of enlighten trying to return home to enlightenment every day is a process of identifying the obstructions and gently addressing them, moving them out, unobstructing the flow of the river. Yeah, I like that, and I've actually used a a rock and stone analogy in trauma work as well, mm-hmm. but where they're in a backpack and. Uh, you might forget you have it and it's weighing you down. And when you turn, you might bump into people and knock mm. them with your heavy backpack of rocks. But, but eventually you do have to take them out of there and set them aside Yeah, this and let I- them go. Exactly. This idea of being stuck in the healing process is really interesting to me because we certainly see it in our work with our clients, right? And, um, and they get stuck in the ways you've talked about. Sometimes I think they get stuck. We've talked about this a little bit with psychedelic medicine, psychedelic assisted therapy. They get stuck um, relying on the medicine to sort of just relieve them in the mm-hmm. moment and in some of the moments thereafter from suffering um, yeah. without, without taking the lessons that the medicine has to teach them um, to get up from the cushion and be in their life, which is being with pain. Yeah, yeah, the healing journey and awakening for that matter can be quite disruptive, can be quite uncomfortable. And that has to be um, kind of embraced going into the process or else there's a risk of just reflexively running from all the work. Uh, There's another analogy I like from the yoga world um, from a teacher I've um, learned from in a number of different ways. Her name's Kino, and she uses this, this 
analogy of almonds, like um, this idea that, uh, say, almonds are the the uh, the suffering, the trauma, and the wounds we have, and they're planted in our consciousness, and they grow roots, and they sprout trees, and then we have this grove of like almond trees, and it, be, it can become familiar, and you can just get kind of comfortably suffering in that. But then through the yoga practice, and yoga, uh, yoga practice is built on this idea of like, like doing the work, using the breath and the movements to create this like prana or heat or energy uh, to scour your shadow, your unseen parts of your consciousness for these almond trees, go for the roots and put them in the frying pan of your practice and fry them. So they can't they can't bear, they can't sprout roots anymore. They can't bear fruit of suffering anymore. And somewhere along the, along the way, you might have an awakening where your heart breaks and you realize you've been bearing fruits of suffering, actually accidentally passing it on to others. But then, um, you know, that's also an awakening uh, that fuels more of the practice. And you're just combing through and clearing that grove until you have this like, the spaciousness of your your mind and your heart and your self to uh, you know channel into your path and your purpose and the people around you. Yeah, yeah. That interview I listened to that I mentioned earlier with um, with Joseph Goldstein, he talked about uprooting mm-hmm. so this idea of uprooting the obstructions, and the obstructions could be traumas, triggers, conditioning, but. Um, Part of the work, yeah, combing like, through those. I like the idea of like of burning it in that frying pan. I, I worked with an IFS therapist who had me um, offer up this sort of effigy that represented some mm-hmm. of the burdens that I was carrying to to. And I hear Dick Schwartz say this too when he works with people. Do you want to offer it up to air, earth, wind, fire, water, um, or light? I think are the ones mm-hmm. he talks about. She didn't give me all those options. She just kind of asked me, "What do you want to do with this?" and yeah, and I remember maybe it's because I had seen The Last Jedi recently, but there mm-hmm. was like this giant tree, and in it was a hearth, like a, a furnace, a hot burning furnace. And I sort of offered up this construct, whatever it was, that was holding me back to this furnace. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was gone. Like it's pr- pretty incredible. I mean, I've, I've uh, I guess, um, caught a whiff of its embers in my life showing up every once in a while, but uh, I love the power of metaphor in that, yeah. in doing that kind of work. And and acting it out, making it real, making a ceremony, a ceremony out yeah. of it to make it sacred. Like um, I've even, well, in different ways, I've liked to do this in meditation circles and with yoga groups each New Year's do a burning bowl ceremony mm. where you can, uh, you can really uh, light up with literal fire mm-hmm. <laughs> the the suffering, the, you know, attachments, the aversions of the past and things you want to let go of and then kind of do something ceremonial with your intention too. Um, and even with my kids, we've burned homework mm-hmm. certain years and it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was an LDS missionary one of my companions got a, a letter from his girlfriend back home breaking up with him. We called those Dear John letters. Mm-hmm. And um, he had all this stuff from her, right? All these pictures and all these nut letters and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, we burned that shit. And <laughs> he uh-huh. felt much better. And he, he's now married to a lovely woman. But it helps. 
Yeah. Speaking of, of ritual and ceremony, I was on a panel talking about psychedelic medicine last week, and one of the panel members was this, uh, she'd probably describe herself as an indigenous healer, an indigenous mm-hmm. medicine person. Oh. And one of the things she, one of the criticisms that she offered to our Western psychedelic renaissance is our lack of ceremony. Yeah. And um, she mentioned, you know, she's very up to date on the research. Um, she actually saw you spoke, speak at the, the thing that happened in Salt Lake recently. Oh, cool. I forget what that conference was called. Rising Consciousness. Rising Consciousness. Yeah. She may have even spoke there. But um, she said, uh, you know, she's aware of the research being done by MAPS. And, and um, she said something about the MDMA being given in this ceremonial bowl. Yeah. Um, and she, she said that's a nice effort. You know, she appreciated the effort, even though it was... It was kind One of, point. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was a little... What's the right word? Anachronistic, maybe? Like, just sort of didn't quite fit to have this bowl that would have carried herbs and something that's ground up or whatever to have this blue capsule in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's something when we used to work with, uh, with Adele LaFrance, who we've mentioned the, the podcast a couple of times, our friend and colleague, um, that's one of the things she tried to bring into our ketamine work as well is the idea oh, of yeah. ritual and ceremony. And I think it's really powerful. It's yeah. important. And yeah, you do have to be aware of like the, like choose as appropriate ones as you can mm-hmm. and make them meaningful and pay attention to like honoring the other cultures and the indigenous wisdoms that we draw so much of this from in a good way. And, mm-hmm. and I know cultural appropriation is a hot topic. Um, yeah, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between appropriation and, uh, and honoring and learning yeah. from. But the fact of the matter is like life is chaotic, right? There's uncertainty in life. And one of the ways we can deal with that is through ceremony and ritual. Like we can punctuate our lives and the uncertainty of it with these more predictable practices like gathering around a dinner table every night with your family, like going to church on Sunday, whatever that means. That could be nature church Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, or communing with a tribe, uh, a group you know, meditating together or doing something like that, because that, you know, takes away or collapses some of that uncertainty into these, like, sacred practices. Even even a yoga practice, like the word vinyasa, if you've heard it, uh, uh, about a yoga practice, like a sequence of yoga poses, actually, the word actually means, like, to set apart a, a in a special way, like mm. stringing together a sequence of poses that... Uh, are purposefully there because that lets you get out of your monkey mind, the chaos, the entropy into a more ordered state. And with that aside, you can start to relax into the more subtle layers of like your breath, your body as the portal, the vehicle to enlightenment. And then bam, you can sink into that flow transcendent state of connecting with something greater than yourself. Yeah. Yeah, another way I like to think about that, maybe it's just saying the same thing with different words, is um, ceremony and ritual, you know, scheduled habits, um, they help you break the spell of everyday consciousness. Yeah. The sort of zombie-like habit-motivated mm-hmm. thinking and behaving that we get into out of necessity in a lot of ways. Um, but especially if you can ritualize it uh, regularly, then it turns into habit. 
when I sit down on Sundays and have what we call, what we call Sunday meditations with my kids and my wife, like we all drop into just a different kind of consciousness, a different way of thinking. And yeah. we're, we're looking at each other. We're relating to each other differently. Sunday dinners, or uh, we try to do them nightly, but yeah, dinner is, is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. For me personally, it's my morning workout. I'm, I'll wake up tired, but as soon as I get to the place where I'm working out of my house and take some breaths, yeah, you know, sip my drink, like I'm awake and I'm in workout consciousness for whatever that might be. Yeah, there's a beauty in them. And it reminds me of the quote that I love in the sunlight of awareness, everything becomes sacred. Mm, that is beautiful. I've never heard that one. You're a quote factory, Reed. <laughs> I think it's from Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, I like that one. Um, a couple more things about the, the stages or the process to awakening and enlightenment I kind of want to hit on. Um, some teachers might say there are no stages. There is no, you know, path. It's already there. Mm-hmm. You just have to awake, awake up to it. Um, others might say, uh, that there are sort of progressive stages that you need to go through and you like can, a hero's journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a hero's journey. And I looked up sort of the four stages of enlightenment from the Buddha, Buddhist perspective. Mm-hmm. And we won't go into them deeply in part because I don't totally understand them, but, um, a stream enterer, you probably know about all this stuff. Uh, a once returner, a non-returner, and then the arahant. Um, but the idea that, uh, you know, first you wake up to this, what we've been talking about, the idea that uh, the belief in the unchanging self or soul, that you aren't separate. And then it's a process of returning to that when you get distracted from it. Mm-hmm. And then staying there, that's sort of the non-returner. Um, and then uh, the arahant being, you know, free from it all. There's this parallel or story of the ox that uh, I won't try to describe. It's kind of long. It's It expands on what you're talking about a little bit, but in a beautiful way that mm. I like to revisit and try to apply to different journeys. But um, essentially, I think it, it is really helpful to remember that there's some confusion. There might be darkness, confusion, some sadness as an early part of this process. There might be some isolation going inward, like Mm -hmm. um, retreating from the normal, like social interactions and energies as you kind of do that deep work. And then kind of this, this returning um, phase of it for some, you can see these patterns that show up in the process. Yeah. Another description of stages I like, uh, I think I mentioned him already. I certainly mentioned it to you. I can't remember if we were recording at this time, but um, Stephen Bodian, his book, mm-hmm. Wake Up Now, I believe is the title, the one yeah. uh, I've been reading lately. He talks about the direct path uh, of just sort of what I've been talking about. Like it just you, it's already there. You should yeah. have to uncover it. His stages are seeking, awakening, and then deepening or clarifying. Then the last being embodiment, where you sort of just yeah. walk in the walk. And I like those. That, that helps me a little bit more is like signposts to kind of know where you are in this process. Yeah, I like that. And a metaphor he uses is, you know, when it's, when it's gradual, it's like walking through the fog and gradually becoming damp and wet. And sometimes enlightenment or awakenings like that. And then sometimes it's like getting hit in the face by a wave. Just all of a sudden life is different and you can never go back. Yeah. So hopefully this podcast has been that. For many mm-hmm. of you. You can't unhear it. You can't unhear this wisdom that we've just been spouting and offering to you folks. Any final thoughts, Reed, on uh, waking up? Well, you mentioned a couple 
books. We, we mentioned some others and apps, but um, just to touch on that one that I alluded to that I really like is called After Ecstasy, The Laundry by Jack Cornfield. I think it touches on a lot of the what to do after or during an awakening process uh, and what to do as you're coming back down this mountain and you still have to chop wood to carry water. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, a couple of books that just sort of bubble to the surface of my consciousness that have been important in my path to these realizations. Um, Awareness by, I think, Anthony DeMello. Is that his name? Um, really like that one. Letting Go, mm-hmm. which I liked about half of, uh, but really benefited from David that Hawkins? Or, uh, I don't remember. Yeah, probably. The guy who wrote... Uh, um, I forget. It's a classic, some, yeah. The some power versus force book. Yeah. yeah that guy. <laughs> um, I read the power of now a long time ago in graduate school. And I know, um, mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle gets, gets shit from a lot of people, but it, it was, it was really good for me at least at the time. Um, Oh shoot. There was another one. Actually no bad parts that I just read yeah, by yeah. Dick Schwartz was really good. And I actually listened to it on audible and, uh, he, he, he gets in there with terrible audio. I don't know, like they should have hired a sound engineer. <laughs> it's like him on zoom or something, but he'll get in there and, and, uh, guide the exercises. Um, so it's actually, it's, it's, if you get the audible version of no bad parts, it's like taking an IFS course from Dick Schwartz. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I love it when the authors read their own Jack Cornfield mm-hmm. did on his book. Yeah, because sometimes someone sent me a, a clip the other day and uh, from Audible. It was like a, an audio screen capture. And I was just so distracted by the fact that I'd heard that narrator from other books that were not about enlightenment. Yeah, And I was like, all I could think of was like the Twilight book that I listened <laughs> to long ago that that same voice I listened to. It's an embarrassing confession. How but, dare you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you just came clean as a Twilight fan. Are you yeah. team, team Jacob or team Edward though? That's you the know, question. Um, that's a good question. I, I devoured those books as I was holding two baby twins throughout the <laughs> night and whatever, ago. whatever would come out. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I have lots of embarrassing confessions. I've read like every John Grisham book mm. and all the Hunger Games, of course. But I love the um, Hunger Games. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big comic book nerd. Maybe we have an episode where it's just us embarrassing ourselves by confessing. Yeah, that'd be good for our own enlightenment and awakening. You know, no the, shame. <laughs> the awakening process does make you take yourself less seriously oh, yeah. and worry a hell of a lot less about what people think. You know, I used to take myself less seriously because I didn't like myself. And mm. now I take myself less seriously because I do like myself. It's so weird. It's a weird sort <laughs> of shift for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, here's to enlightenment. Here's to awakening and being on that path. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Reed. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again.
Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.